President Obama and Amazing Grace. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the conversation. I'm David Schuster. If you ask anybody who covered the Obama White House or who was there during the Obama administration, what are the top speeches during his presidency? I guarantee that one of the top three would be a speech that he gave in June of 2015 to Charleston, South Carolina, in the wake of a slaughter there at the AME Church in which nine people were killed. Well, there's a new remarkable book about the inside the White House at that time, and it's written by Cody Keenan. He was the chief speechwriter for President Obama for four years. He's now a partner at Fenway Strategies. The book is called Grace, President Obama and 10 Days in the Battle for America. Uh, Cody, great to have you on the program. This 10 day period, it starts with the slaughter in South Carolina. And then you've got a couple of Supreme Court decisions on uh, gay marriage and healthcare that you're waiting on. What was the mood like in the White House at this time? It was intense and anxious. And hey, David, thanks for having me on. Um, you know, we, when you're sitting through the White House, you're not thinking that it's a 10 day stretch. You're just, you're going through the days as they come. And before the massacre happened, we were already working on a series of different speeches for the um, Supreme Court decisions. You know, it was it was very possible that they would overrule Obamacare and tens of millions of people would end up losing their health insurance. It was very possible that they would not find a right to marriage equality. And millions of Americans, including a bunch of our friends and colleagues would be told, you don't get to marry the person you're with. So we were already a little anxious on edge and then this massacre happens. Uh, and then, uh, every mass shooting, you know, we we kind of kicked into gear in, in the White House, but this was different. You know, a white supremacist, um, self-radicalized, going into a black church and murdering the country in, in a pretty ugly way. And so as working on all these speeches, we start debating whether or not President Obama is going to give a eulogy at all. Um, he was tired of doing it after mass shootings. He was especially after Republicans blocked a vote on background checks in the Senate. And um, it was it was towards the end of the week when he finally decided he would do it. So all those speeches came together at once. So the good news was that after initially him being hesitant and you thinking, okay, well, I'm not gonna have to do this. Well, they, he did. The decision was made that he was gonna give the speech, so he had at least a couple of days. But the bad news was, I mean, there was so much writing writing on this. And and as Barack Obama has said, and as I think you've acknowledged, that he's the best speechwriter of anybody in the room. Yeah, he called himself the best speechwriter in the room, uh, and I, I wouldn't dispute that most of the time. He was really our chief speechwriter, and you know the, the Charleston. I had this incredible team of speechwriters who were working on every speech, but the Charleston eulogy was something I struggled through. Um, you know, it was, it was different than your typical mass shooting. You've got the the white supremacy angle, you've got racism, guns, uh, the Confederate flag, and it was it was just a lot to try to get through. While all these questions are swirling around that week about who are we, um, and you know. The draft I gave President Obama, I'm very explicit about this in the book, it was not quite up to snuff. And he tore up the last two pages and rewrote them himself and just took it to a higher place. Now, in the in the speech itself, the president spoke about a reservoir of goodness. And he says, if we can find that grace, anything is possible. If we can tap that grace, everything can change. Were those your words or his? Those were his, and he actually took that from, I'd found this out on the morning of the speech. I asked him, where'd you get that quote towards the end about a reservoir of goodness? And he said, I got it from my pen pal, Marilyn Robinson. And I was like, you have a you have a pen pal? And the first lady was on board, this was on Air Force One. And I looked at her and she was just like, ah. But they would write letters to each other. And he pulled this letter out of there that night. And he was, he was already in improving spirits because the Supreme Court had upheld Obamacare while he was on Thursday and he was working on the speech Thursday night. And then Friday morning, you get marriage equality. And there were just these joyous scenes at the Supreme Court and all over the White House. And he had a 
he had an open heart, even though he knew he was going down to eulogize um, victims of an act of racial terrorism. So all of that kind of came together into this beautiful moment where he decided he was going to sing Amazing Grace. And he started, as you point out, uh, he started to sing. And the, at, at, at first, sort of, I guess there's a reverend behind him who starts to laugh. And then very quickly, everybody joins in. Did you know that he was actually going to sing it? Did other White House staff know? What was their reaction? Five of us knew. Uh, we were on Marine One that morning, shuttling from the White House to Andrews Air Force Base. And he handed me back the most recent draft of the speech and said, you know, if it feels right, I might sing it. And the first lady was there, Dennis McDonough and Valerie Jarrett. And I'd, I'd pulled three straight all-nighters in a row. So I just looked at him and I was like, you do you, man, you know, whatever you want. And he was steeped in the traditions of the AME Church. So he knew that they would join in. He knew he wouldn't be left alone. And there was this moment where he paused for 11 seconds at the text. So you know, I knew exactly where he was and exactly where he was going. And I was trying to figure out why he paused. My first concern was I was worried people at home would think there was, there was a page missing in the text and it was going to be my fault. But I asked him afterwards, you know, what was the pause all about? And he said, well, you know, the thing about Amazing Grace is you got to start low. Otherwise, by the time you get to a wretch like me, your voice cracks. So I was just gathering myself to start low. He was the uh, the master, both in that speech and so many others, of sort of the, the pregnant pause, the, the silence to sort of great effect. And you, you've told a remarkable story about other speeches where you thought you had you know, knocked it out of the park in terms of the speech. And President Obama said, well, yes, every one of these lines is a 10, but I need you to bring it down. Explain what that was all about. Yeah, that was the 15, 2015 State of the Union Address. And I thought I'd finally kind of cracked the code on it, written one that was something that was actually enjoyable to listen to rather than just a laundry list. And I took it up to him and he said, like you said, you know, everything is up here at a 10. And I need some of it down at a six, a four, two. Um, and he, do you listen to jazz? And I said, not really. He said, well, you got to listen to some Miles Davis because you know what they say about Miles Davis. And I, again, I said, not really. And he said, it's the silences, it's the space between the notes, it's the notes you don't play, and that's what adds some drama to it. So go home tonight, pour yourself a drink, listen to some Miles Davis. Don't do any work, but then come back here tomorrow and find me some silences. He was good that way. He he knows that a speech is more than just what you put on paper. There's a performance aspect to it too, and, and he could get to the point where. You know, if we were on the eighth draft of the State of the Union address, he'd, he'd know whether a sentence needed one syllable more or one syllable less. When people hear, you know, you talk or others talk about being the White House, and I've sort of seen it myself, there's just this sort of gee whiz among both whether it's the press, whether it's the staff, you're at the White House, you're at the pinnacle of power and political success. Um, but how quickly does that sort of, you know, sort of pinching yourself sort of moment disappear and then you get into the grind of, oh my God, I've got to turn out speeches or I'm on deadline or I can't really enjoy this trip on Air Force One because I have to do revisions. Pretty quickly, you know, I went in my first day in the White House was the day after he was inaugurated and the economy is falling apart. 800,000 people are losing their jobs every month and it's suddenly here, write a speech about the housing market. And you're thinking, well, I don't, I don't know anything about the housing market. So you just, you call up someone at treasury or some policy expert and you're just, you're in it. For the next 2,922 days, you know, as wonderful as Air Force One is, you're you're telling people to go away while you're furiously working on a speech. Um, but all of it is is just a tremendous honor and joy. And one one important thing I write about in the book is that it can be a grind. You know, we were in there for 2,922 days, and most days you go home happy if you move the ball forward just a little bit. There are not many big victories, but those big victories come from those thousands of days of effort. And as part of the effort, I mean, it must have been crushing on the one hand, you have President Obama essentially rip apart work that you've been doing night after night after night, uh, losing sleep. But on the other hand, you tell this remarkable story about how he explains that, well, when you have 
years and years of experience, you will understand this too. Tell me a little more about that, what, what that conversation was about and where. Sure, I mean, it was it really was difficult to write for him just because he was better at it than we were. He had this moral imagination that could lift speech to a high place. And when I gave him that Charleston draft, I knew it wasn't quite up to snuff. And he called me back into the White House that night around 11 p.m. And we sat in the residence and went through his edits. And he, he got to pages three and four, and there was just a big line through each one, which is it's just like a punch in the gut. Um, and I apologized to him. It was the first time I'd ever done that. And I told him, I'm sorry, I couldn't get it there. And he, this is one of the reasons why he's such a great boss. He put his hand on my shoulder and said, look, brother, we're collaborators. You need you you gave me what I needed to do to work with this. And, and you'll see some of your work in there too. And, and plus, when you've been thinking about these issues for 40 years, when you've been thinking about race, when you've written a memoir on race, you'll know what you want to say too. And that's that goes a long way. Cody, what do you think, President Obama? Or I don't know if you've, you've spoke with him, spoken with him or not, but about the sort of this era that we're in now of sort of MAGA and Trump world and suspension of reality. What would he say, or what has he said to you or others about where we are and, and how we get out of this? Well, it's pretty dark, you know. And a lot of it is is a direct response to not necessarily to him or anything he did, but what he represented over eight years in office. It's sort of let loose. Um, this this backlash in the country and and the story of America really is a story of progress and backlash to progress. And he he always said that when he was president. For every two steps forward, you might take one or more steps back. And you know, I'd say we've taken several steps back now. But he'll he, he he's been out there. He was out there more than any other ex president um, speaking when when President Trump was in office. And and I'm not going to get ahead of the staff, but knowing him, I would suspect you're going to hear from him in these midterms. And Cody, what do you teach your students both about sort of where politics is now? I mean, we can, this is a very good reason for people to be incredibly cynical and decide I don't want to be part of politics. And, and that goes for whether you're on the inside of politics or whether you're in journalism and wanting to sort of do a fair job in media. There's all sorts of reasons and excuses why people can say, I don't want to be part of that. I can't really make a difference. I can't uphold the sort of integrity that I want to stand for. What do you tell your students at Northwestern about that? Sure, it's one of the reasons I wrote this book because I feel that too all the time. We, I felt it in the White House. I felt it after the White House, and I want this book to blow that up. I want this book to make people remember that progress is possible. You know, it, all of the extraordinary events of the week in the book are not Barack Obama's alone. They are a result of 50 years of people who pushed and bled for marriage equality. They're a result of 100 years of a struggle for universal health care, and we're still not there yet. 400 year movement for civil rights that we're not to the mountaintop. And, but it can still be collegial and joyous and, and worthy of people's time and effort to get into democracy because the alternative is not good. And so I, I teach my students and they don't really need much prodding from me. Uh, that, that getting into politics and public services is a worthy place for them to put their efforts. Cody Keenan, former chief speechwriter for President Obama. He's a professor at Northwestern now. He also is a partner at Fenway Strategies. The book is Grace, President Obama and 10 Days in the Battle for America. Cody, it is a terrific read. I've just managed to see the excerpts. Can't wait to get my hands on the actual full book. And I know a lot of people are also joining me and thrilled that you've written it. So congratulations on the book and thanks for coming on the conversation. We appreciate it. Thanks, David. I appreciate it. 
Welcome back to the conversation. I'm David Schuster. New York City is now home to the nation's first anti-gun violence czar. The mayor of New York, Eric Adams, made the announcement recently, and that czar joins us now. His name is Andre Mitchell. He's the founder and director of Man Up Inc. They are a community service organization that is dedicated to building a safer city through violence prevention and education. Andre, thanks for being on the conversation. Um, first of all, what was your reaction when the mayor asked you to be this anti-gun violence czar? I was very appreciative of his ask and I was excited about the opportunity to broaden the work. And what exactly is the work as, a, as an anti-gun violence or what are your responsibilities and duties and, and opportunities? Well, I had a nonprofit, as you mentioned, Man Up Incorporated, which is a part of about 35 other organizations here in the city of New York. That's actually, we comprise of what is called the crisis management system. Um, we have the Cure Violence Global Model at the core of this system. We deploy violence interrupters and outreach workers and hospital responders into those neighborhoods where gun violence is unfortunately high. And we broker working relationships with that population to hopefully, you know, build trust that will hopefully help them to reduce the level of gun violence in those neighborhoods. We heard the word, we hear the word trust a lot, and that there've been so many different organizations that have studied how can we reduce gun violence, and everybody keeps saying, well, it's about trust. Give us some concrete examples. What are some of the things that you found that have worked in certain high-risk communities and streets and neighborhoods? Well, an example is being able to use a particular part of the community that hasn't been asked to be involved in this fight in the past. You know, using the credible messengers from the neighborhoods that come from those neighborhoods, some of which have been there and done that themselves, and being able to give them a chance to go back into those same troubled neighborhoods and to really, like I said, build the trust because they have influence that they come from the area, they know the neighborhood, they know the issues, um, and really just to help to pour the resources into those neighborhoods is really where the trust is. And unfortunately, as you mentioned, um, the trust between community and police and other factors, unfortunately, is not as great as we would like it. So we have to use a portion of community members who have that trust to be able to get the work done. There are a lot of places across the United States where if you go into an area that is considered a low crime neighborhood, there's plenty of opportunities, resources for kids in terms of after school sports and activities. And then if you go into a high crime neighborhood, you don't find much of that at all. Is there a correlation? It is, it has a lot to do with it. When you get to the core or to the bottom of it all, you just said it. You know, there's neighborhoods that have and there's neighborhoods that don't have. And so those resources are key. Um, making so that every person in the nation has access to resources is very, very important for the uh, fundamental for people that are trying to just build up and become productive members of society. And so what we're talking about is even out the playing field. You know, this city in particular, we have um, billions of dollars in resources in all of our city agencies. And so the mayor has really tasked myself and Deputy Mayor Sheena Wright, which chairing a task force that will look under every agency's portfolio to see what its resources are and how do we prioritize and ex like really uh, expedite those resources into these communities. Given the, the bureaucratic map of New York City, that sounds like one certain uh, unique challenge for New York, but are there other challenges just about the way the city is laid out or about the neighborhoods or the communities that might be different say in New York as compared to either a smaller city or even another big city like Los Angeles? Yeah, well, you know, when we talk about the gun laws and you see the proliferation of the guns that make its way into our neighborhoods, that's a, that's a big difference. Unfortunately, we have one of the toughest gun, you know, laws in, in the nation. 
Um, but yet these guns are making their way. And, and, and when they get into the hands of a misguided young person, you know, no one can determine the outcome. And so, yeah, there definitely, you know, there's differences and we would like to hopefully get, you know, a holistic actually approach to it so that we can reduce the level of gun violence. The organization Man Up Inc. It was founded at 20 years ago after the death of an eight-year-old, Deshaun Hill, who was killed by a stray bullet on the east side of New York. Tell me a little more about that and what that did to galvanize organizers. Yeah, unfortunately, now, like you said, almost 20 years ago on November 17th, an eight-year-old was shot. His name is Deshaun Hill. Um, very tragic, and it broke the entire not only the neighborhood's heart, but the broken entire city. It was big news. Um, that in itself, it catapulted my, me and, and other members of the community to band together um, to kind of make sure that we can come up with solutions that would hopefully prevent these type of senseless killings that are happening in East New York and other parts of the country. And so now today, 18 years later, we have this institution that's in place. We're doing as many different things as we possibly can. I believe that we are hitting the nail on the head, you know, so hopefully there won't be another day Sean Hill. Are there things over the past 20 years that have surprised you along the way as you've learned more about you know, violence and gun safety and communities and how people react? What are the surprises and what are the things that maybe didn't surprise you along the way? Well, I mean, unfortunately in my communities, we got so used to norm. It was unfortunate, like we became desensitized. That was very surprising to me. Um, the fact that we looked at this, uh, this epidemic as, as norm, and in fact, it's not. Uh, so yes, gun violence is a disease, um, and we need to treat it as a public health crisis in, in this nation. And we need to look at it from the same lens as any other disease that is out of control. And how do we really prioritize it? And how do we invest in those neighborhoods? And, and how do we invest in the people who are living in those type of war zones? You mentioned the mistrust between police and the community that they serve. And we've seen countless you know, videos just over the last six months where shots are fired, there's gun violence, police arrive on the scene and community members don't wanna to talk to the police because they don't trust the cops. How does a community and any community get over that and rebuild trust and establish some sort of relationship so that there is both information that can flow to the police, but also police can respect the dangers that a community faces from perhaps talking with police? I think one that community has to take its part up as well. It's a collective effort. One of the things that I promote throughout my work is that community is first and foremost, and they need to be involved and they are involved. And when community takes ownership of its neighborhood, that's the beginning. You know, unfortunately in certain precincts here in the city of New York, there's certain hot spots where unfortunately the uh, deviant behavior is the minority but because of the social medias, it appears as the majority. And so we have to begin first with you know, honoring the community and the respect of the community and being able to extend our hands by using community members in the fold. And I believe that's where the trust begins. Our um, community members and police, I mean, there's this whole sort of uh, tension right now over people who have cameras, right? We wouldn't know, know about Eric Garner or wouldn't have known what happened in Minnesota had it not been for somebody brave enough to have a camera to say, I'm gonna record the police because they're doing something wrong. Are police in your estimation doing a better job of sort of embracing and appreciating that transparency is, is helpful for all of us? I'm seeing some improvement in that area. You know, it has a lot to do with the leadership and the training. Um, that police officers receive and undergo. Uh, we still have a long way to go, to be honest with you. 
Um, again, you know, the Eric Gardner situation and, and, and George Floyd did, did shed a lot of light on this type of situation. Um, but again, we have to, you know, make sure that people come into neighborhoods of color mostly and, and, and respect those communities and, you know, go in there with an open heart and open mind and as it relates to how we want to better protect and serve them. Andre, what would you say are the greatest challenges uh, to trying to reduce, you know, gun violence and to make our streets and communities safer? Well, I would tell you first, I said it mentioned earlier, the access, accessibility to guns, the way that they are illegally flowing into these neighborhoods and the access, that is, is definitely a big challenge because the more that we try to convince community and make them aware that this is, um, you know, this is not good for you, that, you know, they seem to have more guns than they have an opportunity, more than a job opportunity and an education opportunity. Um, and also getting the community at large, the nation at large to prioritize it. You know, unfortunately, it goes away um, in between high-profile shootings, um, mass shootings at school. But it's the in-between work. We need to keep this as a priority in the city and in this country. And as a czar, uh, there's now accountability that people are going to have with you in sort of a government position. How do you uh, determine success? What are the metrics that you are looking for in terms of figuring out whether or not the impact is positive or, or not having any sort of impact at all? Well, I think being at the chair, like I said, I share a chair, I co-chair a task force that the mayor has put together, um, a gun violence prevention task force. Um, that's one, we are sitting down with all of the commissioners and first deputy mayors and other high-ranking officials in the government to get them to understand the community um, needs. These neighborhoods that we have based on data know that they have been historically underserved and being able to make sure that the resources make its way into those neighborhoods is my job. And so that's what I'm looking forward to, making sure that that type of uh, accessibility to the resources are real. For people who are watching this, there may be some misperceptions about gun violence. Or a lot of people think, oh my God, I need to worry the most about a mass shooting. Somebody who's gonna run around New York and kill you know, a dozen people. But the data would suggest that actually most of the gun violence is more sort of individualized than that. Do I have it correct? Yes, it's so unfortunate that the, the gun violence is a lot less. It's not like that's what most people think. It's it's more individualized. It's on a case by case basis. Um, unfortunately, it has a lot to do with interpersonal, you know, relationships and and disputes, um, and then they lead into other areas. Um, and so, yeah, we need to really look at this thing a little bit more carefully. And more importantly, it is it's at the you know the core of the communities. It's it's, it's poverty. You know, and if we can address the poverty issue, eventually we will be able to um, hopefully build back safer and cleaner and peaceful communities. And for parents out there, regardless of whether you're in a big city like New York or a small town, for parents who are worried about their kids and what may happen with gun violence, what can parents do? What can families do to try to help solve this? I think what parents and what communities and families need to do is band together. I always said that there's more of us than it is of anyone else. And we need to coalesce. We need to come out. We need to speak out. We need to reach out um, to the community-based organizations, the clergy. There's a whole lot of people on the ground that is willing to get involved. But we are still, you know, again, like I said, we, 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 we have some way to go. We need to come together to be able to get in front of this. So we welcome all of everybody's input and their participation. Hmm. Andre Mitchell, he is the nation's first anti-gun violence czar. He is the anti-gun violence czar of New York City, as appointed by the mayor, Eric Adams. Uh, Andre, good luck to you, and thanks for joining us on the conversation, we appreciate it. 
Thank you, Dave. Likewise, I appreciate the opportunity. You got it. And that'll do it for this edition of our show. On behalf of Asher Cofield, Gina Kim, Craig Lowry, and Bart Kyle, I'm David Schuster. Thanks for watching.